0: Well, today we are looking on to the next chapter of Luke chapter 7 now, uh, verses 1 through 17. And so let's continue by looking at this particular story. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servants be healed. For I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out, and he was with his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he was moved with compassion for her and said to her, Do not cry. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stopped. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. Rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And This word about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding region. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, again, we pray that you would speak to us through your servant, Luke. May we see and hear in his words and through his words what they tell us about you and what they tell us about our call. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, last week, uh, Sam Spencer did a tremendous job of finishing up our look at the Sermon on the Plain. Well, sort of. Um, I mean, she, she did do a great job. She didn't just sort of do a great job. She did a great job, but the sermon in many ways is not actually This is this remarkable bit of storytelling here that that Luke does, because he has Jesus kind of preach with his words the Sermon on the Plain, and then immediately he tells two stories. And both of those stories are showing us how Jesus was actually now living out those words that he had just Preached. We see it first with the centurion. As you can imagine, for the Jewish people, the centurion, the, the soldiers were certainly the enemies. They represented the oppression of the Roman Empire and they actually carried out the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so immediately, Jesus then begins to love his enemy. And the story, of course, that comes right after that is the story of the widow and the widow who is weeping. And if you remember the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. And so right after this, and we want to pay attention as good kind of scholars of the Bible, we want to be able to see how Luke is so beautifully kind of weaving these stories right after he preaches this sermon. Let's begin with the story of the centurion. You've got the story, of course, of, this, uh, of the centurion whose servant um, is not well and perhaps is dying and so he sends a group of religious leaders to go and to try to, you know, convene on his behalf. And so they go and and they ask whether or not, please, will you will you come? He's a he's a good man. We really need. Um, we'd love for you to do this. And so Jesus begins to go towards the house of the centurion, and then some other. Guys who have also been sent by the centurion say, look, don't even worry about it. We know that you can just speak the word. That's the kind of authority you have. Just do so and the servant will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. And all of a sudden the servant is healed. Now, what exactly do we gather from this particular story? I think a few things. One of the things that's fascinating to see in the beginning is that Jesus was amazed Now, Luke talks a lot about people being amazed, but almost always it is they who are amazed at Jesus, at the things that Jesus has done, at the things that Jesus has said. But here we find that Jesus himself is the one who is amazed. And why is he amazed? He's amazed at the faith of the centurion. And he says that nowhere else in Israel have I seen faith Like this. Now, for us here in 2023, we just kind of blow right through that. But for Luke, who was writing to this Gentile audience, what this is beginning to say in this remarkable way, Luke is beginning to show us, who is probably 99% of us here. That the invitation to join in with what Jesus is doing is not just for one particular set of people, but is actually for all of us. So from the very beginning, we are beginning to see that this story of Jesus here from the seventh chapter, we're beginning to see, even though Jesus worked primarily within the Jewish people, we are beginning to see, and Luke will continue to show us this in the book of Acts that he writes, that this is actually an invitation for all of us. So he invites all of us to be a part of what he's doing. But what's also significant is he invites all of us as the importance of the community. Did you see this? So there you have the centurion, right? Who is kind of wanting help on behalf of his servant. And so you have a group of men who are sent out on behalf of the centurion who is doing this on behalf of a servant. And then a little bit after that, you have another group of men who have been sent on behalf of the centurion who was sending them on behalf of the servant. In other words, there are all of these people who play this key role in Jesus healing the centurion's servant. One of the things that we always have to be mindful of, especially as Americans, is that we always want to privatize our faith. There is this constant kind of sense of individualism. It's about me and my faith. And what we always want to remind ourselves of is our faith is always personal, but it is never private. It takes a group of people to be able to really follow Jesus together. It took this group of people, if you will, to be able to see Jesus uh, be able to do this healing of the servant. It's also, as Dale Bruner points out, a great reminder of the absolute critical nature of intercessory prayer. Did you notice that nothing was said about the servant's faith? Whose faith was it? It was a centurion's faith. And so we're reminded of the significance of intercessory prayer, the significance of praying for one another. We here at ZPC, I don't know if you know this, we have a group of people who are intercessory prayers prayers. And so they're always praying. They're praying over the lives of those in the ZPC community. And one of the beautiful things about the food pantry is they're praying for all of the requests at the food pantry. You know, when the, when the, when the folks drive into the food pantry these days, because that's how we're doing it, or drive through, um, the first person that meets them is, uh, it's the first or second person who meets them always asks this question, well, how can we pray for you? What's going on? And so when, you, when we get this list weekly of all these people we're praying for, there's usually this very lengthy list of people who have come through the food pantry. And some of these things are small and some of these things are monumental. I'll be honest with you, after reading through them, you begin to feel some of the weight of what so many in our community are wrestling with, are struggling with. One of the beautiful things about folks, it seems to me, that come through the food pantry is that they tend to be pretty honest maybe a bit more honest than what many of us are. And so they share these things and we pray for them. And this group of prayers, they pray for them day after day, person after person, event after event, request after request. Bruner also says, you know, one of the greatest things that we can do is pray for our children, for those of us who have children. You know, one of the things as a pastor that I oftentimes have experienced are parents who have Uh, young adult children and who come in and you can feel the weight so many times it it can be lots of different issues that their children may be struggling with Uh, maybe their faith has gone dormant maybe they're struggling with drugs or alcohol or lifestyle choices that have been made but you can see uh, you can almost visibly see the weight of that and what Bruner says is this is great this should be a great kind of encourager to us keep praying Keep seeking after the Lord. Keep seeking after healing on behalf of others. Do not give up. For we serve a Lord who longs to hear us. Now, there's one last thing that I actually almost drove right by when I came to this story until it was pointed out to me. But I think it's pretty fascinating. It's, this, it's the importance of verses 4 and verses Let's just look at that real quick. Uh, The the religious leaders, they get to Jesus. Did you hear what they said? They said, oh, please, the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our people. He built our synagogue. He is worthy for you to answer his prayer. And then in verse 6, the centurion with the second group Says to, the, says to the Lord, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I love this because it is for many of us, we have both the religious leaders inside of us and the centurion inside of us. The religious leader part of us inside of us says, "Hey, you can earn this. This is the religious part. We can earn it. Just live well enough, love well enough. Do enough good things. And then, Jesus will answer your prayers. Then Jesus will come through for you. And then there are those other parts of us. Right, I would say the actual Jesus following part of us that says, no, we're not worthy. Like we we can't, we've not done anything for ourselves. We can't claw our way into this. All we can do is depend on you. And just as we've been saying throughout the gospel of Luke, it always begins not with what we can do, but instead with what Jesus has done, who Jesus is is. And so if nothing else, perhaps today you can simply ask yourself, are you verse 4? Or are you verse 6? What does that mean for you in your own life, this remarkable juxtaposition between these two understandings of how it is that God works? Well, after this, of course, we have Luke again in this powerful way moves from this very powerful centurion to this powerless widow. Now one of the things that's important to see is the context of this particular story. It's something that we might easily overlook, but that they would not have overlooked then, they who knew their Old Testament scripture so well. There is this remarkable uh, echoing here of 1 uh, Kings 17. 1 Kings 17, you've got Elijah, um, and he goes and he meets a widow, Um, And uh, the widow has uh, one son, um, and he meets her at the city gate. and, And then the son ends up dying, and Elijah prays over the son, and the son is given new breath, new life. Does that sound familiar? Here you have Jesus, and he meets a widow who has one son and he meets her at the city gate and that son uh, is dead and Jesus prays over him or speaks to him and all of a sudden he has new life. Right, one of the things that we've talked about so much is this tapestry of God's kingdom and this reminder that what Jesus is doing, right, it is interwoven back through the story of who God has been from the very beginning, which is significant because we know that that weaving of that tapestry continues and it helps us to understand, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, how exactly we are connected with the story of Jesus, which is connected with the story of Elijah and so you have this Jesus and you have this widow and when Jesus looks at this whole situation we're told he has this remarkable compassion remember what we said a few weeks ago that the Hebrew word for compassion and the Hebrew word for what are the same this is always fun to me because it reminds me I need to keep repeating things The Hebrew word for womb, and the Hebrew oh, yeah, for compassion, the word is the exact same. The only difference are the vowels, and actually, in, in ancient Hebrew, there were no vowel signs, and so they would have looked the exact same. And there's this significance, of course, of what is compassion—compassion compassion at its root, much like a womb, much like a woman who is carrying the burden of someone else. I'm going to ask you guys this again next week, okay? (laughs) Write it down. So you have this beautiful sign of Jesus having compassion. You know what else is interesting about this is that while Jesus is just talking about the remarkable faith of the centurion, here we're not told about the widow's faith at all. But what happens is simply that all of a sudden he sees her and he is moved with compassion in order to go in order to take care of this woman who is weeping this widow who is mourning I love what Henry Nowen says I'm not even going to do much with this I just think it's a kind of a beautiful poetic way to think about Jesus and compassion here's what Nowen says he says when Jesus was moved to compassion the source of all life trembled the ground of all love burst open and the abyss of God's immense, inexhaustible, and unfathomable tenderness revealed itself. What I love about this is that you have this massive God, this creator God, and yet he looks at this weeping widow, and he goes to her out of this remarkable, beautiful compassion. You know, some even speculate that a part of the reason why Jesus perhaps has such compassion for her is because he's already seeing the future. Many would suspect that Joseph, uh, since we don't ever hear about him, he has perhaps died, and so perhaps Mary is this widow, and he knows that when he goes up on the cross, that again she is going to be a, a mourning and a weeping widow herself. And so Jesus, almost out of this compassion, is drawn particularly to her in this moment. So Jesus does this, right? He takes up this widow. He he hands, or this uh, this boy. He hands him. To the sun. We're told that he just immediately starts talking. I have nothing to talk say about that other than I just find that interesting, uh, that that's the thing that says he has new life, that perhaps he was just a, a talker, a loquacious guy. And so he just, boom, he's up, he begins to talk. And what happens to the crowds? We're told that the crowds have a fear of the Lord. Fear seized all of them and they glorified God. What about this fear? What about this fear of the Lord? We mentioned this probably a couple of months ago now because it's really hard for us to understand what this fear means when it comes to the fact that they feared the Lord. So let's remember some of what Eugene Peterson has to say about this. Here's one thing he says. He says, we're afraid when we are suddenly taken off guard and don't know what to do. We're afraid when our presuppositions and assumptions no longer account for what we are up against and we don't know what will happen to us. We're afraid when reality without warning is shown to be either more or other than we thought it was. Fear of the Lord is fear with the scary element deleted. One of the things that we see with the fear of the Lord, one of the things it reveals to us is that we are not in control. When they saw all of a sudden this this boy who was brought to life, this is not the way normal things happen. So, when they begin to see this, all of a sudden they begin to worship God. Why? Because they realize that they are not in control. It was this vivid reminder to them that they are not God and that only God is God. There is something that happens that they could never do. It's why when we, I did kind of just a brief introductory remarks on Ash Wednesday, I reminded those who had gathered that this day is an incredible gift. Ash Wednesday is perhaps uh, my favorite or top two or three favorite days in the Christian year because it reminds us that we are dust and to dust we shall return. It reminds us that we are human. And whenever we are reminded that we are human, it also means that we are reminded that God is God. And in those moments, when you finally begin to put God up here and we are here, it means that we can stop pretending. How many of us like to pretend that we are actually in control? There's one, there's two who are honest. Right, And so there's this surprising gift that when you can just admit that you are human, I could not do this thing that God, that Jesus did there. When we admit that, it allows us to breathe. We don't have to pretend. And all of a sudden we can allow God to be God. And that is what begins to lead to a remarkable worship because we realize there is somebody else other than us. And so they began to worship then, right? That's the first thing that happens. And then Peterson goes on to say this about fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is a cultivated awareness of the more and other that the presence or revelation of God introduces into our lives. I am not the center of my existence. I am not the sum total of what matters. I don't know what will happen next. Fear of the Lord keeps us on our toes in the play of creation. It keeps our eyes open. Something's going on here and I don't Want to miss it. Peterson goes on to say that it cultivates awareness of where God is. You see, this is what happens. When you realize that you are not God, then you begin to actually look for where God is at work. Right? We talked about this a lot, but you begin to then start looking for the presence of God. When you know that you are not God, you begin to look for God. This is exactly what happens with them. Because right after that, right after fear sees them and they glorify God, then they begin to say, God has visited his people I love this one line. It's one that Luke likes to use. He uses it a few times, including in Acts, that God has visited his people. When you fully understand that you are human, then you can begin to actually look for the presence of God. Then you can begin to see where God is at work. This is clearly right. what happened to the people there. All of a sudden, they begin to see God at work we've been talking a lot about the importance of this. Uh, Trevor Hudson has been helpful in this and some others with reminding us that while, you know, they were very lucky not all of us would be able to see or many of us a person who's alive, or a person who's dead, come alive. What, they, what we begin to see is that God, so often it happens in those ordinary things, right? This is why we talk about, what do we talk about? We talk about sacraments. We talk about baptism in the water, and we should remember God in the midst of that. We talk about the breaking of the bread. We should remember God in the midst of that. Trevor Hudson says that we should begin by remembering those things that bring us joy. I started thinking about this. One of those things that brings us joy, he suggests this is, is a cup of coffee. And so I started thinking more about a cup of coffee. How many of us just gulp coffee down without thinking about what a joy and what a gift it actually is? How often do you think about how that coffee got into your mug or your cup? Sometimes we use the word instant coffee that is completely oxymoronic. Because you know, you have to plant a coffee plant and it takes about 10 years for that coffee plant to be able to produce the beans for you. And there are people who, of course, are cultivating that soil over those 10 years, who are who are watching it, who are watering it, all those things over 10 years. And then there's somebody who goes and they pick like the cherry and under and inside of that is the coffee bean. There's someone who does that. And then, of course, you've got the roasting. And then, of course, you have to have it shipped because typically it's in the coffee belt, right? Which is parts of Africa, South America, Asia. And then they, they perhaps they ship it all the way over and then you have it. Then they have to package it, and then you have a truck driver who brings it to the, the grocery store, and then you have a grocer, right, who, who takes it and puts it up on the shelf. And then someone gets it, and in my household, it's one of the few things I do. I make the coffee. So if you're Megan, someone else also makes it. I won't share this part on uh, the 1045. So, and, and then you have your cup of coffee. Have you ever thought about that? All of these things for you. All of the work, all of that that has gone for you to have this cup of coffee. What do we do? Don't even think about it. What does it cultivate? What kind of awareness is cultivated when we slow down to remember and remember all of these things and going all the way back to the God it is who first kind of creates these coffee beans and the God who kind of helps to make these things grow. How might that help us as we slow down to begin to see the presence of the Lord when even something as simple as a cup of coffee, we begin to genuinely focus on how We have received that on this day. But there's one last thing, it seems to me, that's very significant when it comes to this kind of notion of the fear of the Lord and of worshiping God and of beginning to see how God has visited his people. And that is the simple notion of the critical nature of widows. Now, we could get so caught up in this particular scripture passage or any of them that we keep kind of digging underneath things, and that's great and fine. But we likely have not taken this passage seriously enough unless we've actually just begun to pay attention to the widow who was in it. See, widows are a pretty big deal. For the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes about widows more than anybody else does. We started, do you remember the first time we see a widow in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke? Here's another question. Luke chapter 2. Do you remember who it was? Everyone remembers Simeon, but we don't necessarily remember Anna. Anna was a widow. And she also spoke over Jesus, right? And this is the baby Jesus at this time. So you begin there. You have many more notions, of course, especially here. Uh, just so happened that, in, um, that on uh, Tuesday night, I met with the deacons. I meet with them annually, and I always bring about the, the creation of the deacons. Do you remember why? I don't know, for some reason, there's lots of questions. Q&A, it's a little smaller group today, so I feel like just doing this. Uh, do you remember why it was that the deacons were created? Because the Greek widows were not being taken care of. James says that the church is a church who is taking care of orphans and widows. So again and again, we begin to see the importance of widows when it comes to the life of the church. And there's lots of reasons, it seems to me, for that. One of the fascinating things about being a pastor and being a part of a church is that churches are oftentimes full of widows. There are some widowers, but just biology makes it that there are more widows than there are widowers. And this can be an oftentimes overlooked part of society, to be sure, but even in the church at times. And one of the things that I have discovered about widows is that they are some of the absolute strongest people you will ever meet. One of the ways that they are remarkable is even before widowhood, when, 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 when their husbands, let's just say here in this case, has some kind of disease or something that is clearly ailing them that may lead to their death. They are remarkable. What it takes to care and love and nurture Somebody who is sick and dying and you do all of that at the same time that you have your own emotional struggle of the fact that you are going to soon lose this person whom you love desperately, it is incredible. And I think I've said this before, that whenever I do a wedding and I have them do their vows and we say in sickness and in health or in sickness and in death, I always think about widows and widowers who I have experienced seeing. And I realize that this is what this is. And this couple, they just, they can't even think about that, right? They're just, you know, they're mostly, they're just thinking about, you know, how much longer is this going to go and all of this? Let's go celebrate. What they don't see actually are these beautiful, painful, but beautiful images of what marriage so often looks like. And so you have this thing of widows, right? And you have so many widows in our midst. And so this week, I even spoke to some widows because I said, I just want to hear more. What is it like to be a widow? And so one of the widows began by saying, actually just quoting another widow who said, you want to know what changes? Everything changes when you become a widow some ways, it's the large things, of course, that you might naturally think about, right? Maybe it's the ways in which, you know, uh, maybe, maybe only the husband and the finances, or at least you used to do it together, and now that's no longer the case. Maybe it's something like buying or selling a home or buying a car, and you used to always do this with somebody else, but now you do this, you know, or you, yeah, now you have nobody else to do that with, at least not the trusted partner that you've had for so long but in my conversations with widows, what I realize is in many ways, perhaps, it's actually the smaller things. Because it's 24 seven. And it's not just momentarily, it's long. It's the little things like eating breakfast together or lunch together or dinner together or what you're going to watch on TV together. It's the thing like planning vacations or being with children and grandchildren. It's these little things that we don't oftentimes perhaps think about, but you've been doing this for days and, or for weeks, years that you've been married, and all of a sudden now there's not that person. And, and in one conversation I had, I thought it was very insightful. You know, most of us, when we're married, we become an and. It's Jerry and Megan, right? As I think about people from previous congregation, it's Nick and Ruth, it's Ray and Val, it's Heat and candy, and after the passing of someone, now it's just Nick, it's just Candy, it's just Val, and you, 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 you. Part of your identity is lost in this remarkable way. And what one widow said to me is, you know, what's hard is that you meet somebody new. You know, you meet a new friend, and you realize that in some way they'll never know all of you because you've. You've, you're, all of you has been built up over decades with this other person. The other person is no longer there. Sometimes there's regret. words said or not said or pain. And so I wanted to know, what do we do? How do we help love and care for widows? And one of the ways, of course, that we've done this, and this was really started by widows, not surprisingly, is this group that's relatively new called Starting A New, where widows get together and they begin to think about new things and new life and what's next and all of these sorts of things, which are clearly remarkably important. But of course, that also continues to leave the question, what about the rest of us? How do we love and care for the widow in our midst? And one of the things I think that is most significant is simply to A, notice them, and B, celebrate who they are. These widows that we have in our midst, and I know they don't want to be kind of pointed out and they might be angry at me after this, but is they are remarkable. I love, one of the great things, and when you have a little kid uh, uh, and you have a widow or widower, usually a widow, like they'll see like my kids run through and just to see the smile on their faces when they see these kids. And the smile, you know, is doing a couple different things, right? The smile is reminding them perhaps of their own children when they were that age or their grandchildren. And they're like, oh, look at them. They're so cute. And the smile is also saying, I am so glad they're not my kid. And so you begin to see this and one of the remarkable things is that 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 our widows and our widowers they have remarkable stories that far too often we neglect and so what we begin to see, now in Jesus' time, you had a lot of other things going on with widows, right? This would have been their pension. You know, all those things would have gone aside as soon as, as, soon as they died because it went from male to male. And once you lost, in our case, you know, they lost their only son and her husband. You know, she would have been asking, how am I going to survive? We have some, some of that for our widows. But a lot of it is just simply this notion of how are we paying attention to them? How are we loving them? Why? Because they are a gift to us. And when you have a church like ours that has people older to younger, we are neglecting, if you will, being able to see the presence of God. I am convinced of this, that the closer you get to widows, the closer you will get to being able to see and feel the presence of the Almighty. Because what you begin to discover so often with our widows and widowers are a people who have been through these painful experiences and yet a people who continue to give praise to God, a people who continue to point to Jesus, a people who continue to have this great and remarkable love. And so in many ways, as I read this passage today, I realized that a part of what I wanted to do is just simply say, let us make sure, let us continue to be a people who are noticing those in our midst. Don't do it today because it's too obvious. But maybe next week or the week after, just go up and have a conversation, begin to learn, hear their stories. They are incredible people. And a people I am convinced who loves its widows and widowers well is a church that notices the presence of God in ever deeper ways. A people who notice and love the widows and widowers in their midst are a people who grow in their fear and their reverent worship of the Lord. And I think it is also a church that the crowds all around us will notice because it becomes a place where young and old, single, married, divorced, widows, widowers are welcomed and loved. And in so doing, we reflect the Jesus who has compassion, the Jesus who longs to heal, the Jesus who calls us to be a community. For God and for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.